Welcome back once again to the Inquisitor podcast with me, Marcus Kauke. Today, I have as my guest someone I think you're going to find very interesting, Dominic Ashley Timms. Dominic is CEO of the global management performance company, Notion. Notion's been around for 21 years. What's really interesting is they've become an overnight success over those 21 years. And they're taking on the likes of the MetLife's, the Vodafone's, the BT's of this world in head-to-head competition for some of the world's most prestigious awards in their area. Now, they have recently won the Personnel Today L&D Supplier of the Year Award, which is a huge thing in that space. And they came in second after MetLife in the Learning Technologies Award for Best Learning Technologies with a commercial project application. Now, this is a 14-person company. So why am I raving about them? Well, they do a couple of things incredibly well. One is they help managers to coach in the moment at the point where it's needed in the 16 to 20, 30 times a day that they get interrupted by people asking for help, being asked for direction. And what's interesting is if you can imagine for a second the potential of being able to do that at scale, not just working one-on-one and doing lots of kumbaya, incense, and an hour uh, stuck in a darkened room together. But in the moment when someone asks you a question, instead of just feeding them the answer and giving them a solution, actually giving them the capability and enabling them to do it for themselves. So, Dominic, it's a joy to have you here. I I know you're basking in your glory at the moment. (laughs) We'll give you a a, a minute to um, explain your journey. So first of all, um, why did you set Notion up? Firstly, thanks for inviting me onto this podcast. It's really nice to spend some time with you, Marcus. And it's a great question. I mean, we've been around for a long time. The starting point for the company was really, I had been working in management consulting and very specifically uh, addressing the human side of change. And so that meant that with very large consulting projects, I was, I was very much involved in looking at the impact on people and really thinking about the, prog- the progression of these projects and making sure that the communication around that and the thinking had happened uh, to ensure that we had the fullest commitment from the client staff to the changes we were making. And uh, one thing uh, that that was becoming increasingly apparent to me in my work as a consultant is that wherever change happened, and even seeing consultants walking around with their clipboards inside organizations actually created fear. And it was something we were paying for. Well, exactly. It was stopwatches and clipboards. And, 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 you know, anyone's experienced that in their workplace. I mean, the rumors go out and and you have to think very carefully. So so we really thought about how we were dressing, how we were presenting ourselves, how we're integrating with the staff. But but this idea that that fear is very often right in the center of where organizations are making change and that there is a, a human casualty impact whenever organizations are making changes. And because I was working in this field, it's something that, that really grew as a fascination for me. And um, I, I, I was lucky enough to go and study an MBA. And whilst I was there, I was heavily influenced by some of the people on my, on my cohort to really think about what I would do differently going forward. And this idea had really inspired me. And in fact, my, my, my distinction, I guess my turning point was recognizing that change only really occurs with the engagement of people. I mean, change is what people make of it. So yes, we can change the processes, but actually the processes don't work if the people don't operate to the processes and you need to write into that. 
That's a fabulous observation and one that anyone considering selling something to somebody needs to be aware of. If you're going to ask someone to move from the status quo where they're fat, dumb and happy and they're comfortable and it's familiar and it's not broken, so don't fix it. And even if it's broken, you know how it all works. So there are no surprises. To changing, you're going to have to be significantly more appealing. Now, a lot of people will move away from fear, but that's never going to sustain. People just get worn out and stressed over that. And then you end up creating other problems like absenteeism, sickness, conflict. So what I'm curious about is let's start with what is coaching and what is it not? Well, I think it's worth just just thinking about what you just said there, because that, that whole thing about in, engaging people in that change, I think the turning point for me, which leads on to coaching, was the fact that most change situations that are created by companies are very much tell-based. This is the change that's going to happen. And, and basically, you know, people just have to sort of a, a, adopt to that somehow. But what I found through the work that I was doing is that the more questions we asked of people about new processes or how we could do things better, the more people became engaged in that change. And that's really how I came to this conclusion that you know, change only has happened if it's with the engagement of people making that change uh, thing, which really led me then into the whole field of coaching because coaching at its heart is about asking questions that we are not trained to ask ourselves. And indeed, in, in the change projects I was involved with, I was using coaching and working with project managers and coaching them. And it was all around how we're asking better questions, how we're engaging the people around us. And so that really was then the, the, the starting point for creating a notion, which was that there is a, a room for coaching in change situations. How are we actually setting up people to go and ask questions and engage people and coach them so that they can become a part of that change and give of their best? And the more that we did that, as I said, the more we saw people regain some certainty over their futures, what was happening to them, because they are now part of the change. They're engaged in it. They had skin in the game rather than just being victims of change, waiting to hear what was going to happen can, next. Can you talk about some of the projects that you've been involved in where there's been you know, significant wholesale change and by implementing operational coaching at scale, you're able to drive not only a successful change program, but a willingness to adopt it? Yes, and I think you're bringing us right up to date with the work that we've been evolving over the last 15 years. And I think the, the turning point for the distillation of what it is that we do today was uh, our involvement with a, a huge corporate change program that was being undertaken by Royal Mail. And some of you will, uh, I'm sure, remember pre-privatisation that the Royal Mail went through what was the UK's largest corporate change program in, in UK history at the time where the job of every postman and woman was essentially changed. And that involved a great deal of commitment from frontline managers, the redesign of processes, the renegotiation of uh, long-held union rights. It was an ugly and large project which needed to happen in order to modernise the Royal Mail's practices, their working practices in order to prepare for privatisation and also to help them to remain competitive in the face of massive growth in the logistics sector with uh, bona fide blue chips 
uh, chipping away at the Royal Mail's traditional marketplace. They needed to be a very different animal. Right, but you're not a project management house. So what was your involvement? So we were invited to work with frontline managers to introduce them to some of the behavioural work that we have been doing within Notion. And that really is our expertise, is working with large groups of managers and leaders to really help them think about how they move through their day and how are they engaging with the people around them and how are we creating the conditions as managers and as team leaders that allows people to bring the best of themselves to work and contribute at their highest level? How do we encourage that and value that and um, and invite that? And that's not something that's uppermost in our mind most of the time. So that's what we're invited to do with the frontline managers at Royal Mail to help with this change. Because if I remember rightly, that wasn't a project that was going particularly well. So... Um, it had its challenges, I think that's fair to say. I mean, of something of that scale, and, you know, you're talking about a national organisation that has operations in every single town in the in the United Kingdom. I mean, it's, it's a massive, and beyond the international uh, businesses and, and logistics as well. So in a number of regions within the, the UK, the, the change was not progressing to, to plan, and, uh, and it required a, di- a different approach. I mean... If, you, if you're trying a particular approach and it's not getting anywhere, then, then we need to look at what we can do differently. So that's where we were invited in as an organisation to work with frontline managers to equip them with some different insights and some different skills that they could use on the frontline. And this was really the beginning of, um, I guess, democratising coaching amongst manage- management and, and making this a much more of a management competency. And I think that's the that's really where we have focused on the last 15 years. Is, what do you is mean that, by democratising coaching? We need, to, we need to tread very carefully around this word coaching because the minute you say coaching, all of us pretty much default to a mental model that we each hold about coaching. So if you have had the pleasure of being involved in sports and you've had a coach, that will give you some sort of mental imagery around what coaching can do if you have been lucky enough to work with a coach or a life coach uh, somebody who has supported you to achieve a goal that will give you a mental model about coaching and within the business arena most of us would understand what executive coaching might be our senior leaders working with another experienced coach to help them become more effective but in most of those cases we're talking about a one-to-one relationship you know, you have an experienced and trained coach, ideally, and there's a lot of people out there who say they're coaches who actually haven't had training as a coach, and their client. And that that relationship between the two of them is a personal and intimate relationship where the coach holds the goals and aspirations of their client in their hands and works with them to help them progress towards those goals. But of course, we work with organizations that maybe have 130, 160,000 employees and maybe only have 20 trained coaches in their organisation. And those 20 trained coaches maybe in their spare time coach two or three individuals a year. So you're talking about people perhaps in, inside an organisation having you know, 60 people maybe being coached in an organisation of 160,000. Does not a coaching culture make? No. <laughs> so democratising is, is the idea that actually we need to take coaching away from being a highly skilled, a highly trained, 
professional or highly trained people inside organizations who coach on a one-to-one basis in coaching relationships and actually find a way of extracting the very best of the behavioral aspects that can underpin coaching and making that a management competency. And how do we really show managers at a behavioral level how to become more aware of those moments each day where flipping the conversation around from directing to actually using inquiry, something none of us have been taught, to actually drive a better outcome from that moment in that situation in that conversation. And that is what we do as an organisation. It's what we have been working on and developing across all sorts of organisations in multiple countries around the world to really help make that a management competency. It it strikes me that the point where you could create the greatest leverage for the least amount of effort is starting to teach these skills at school. You're quite right. And uh, we've had uh, interest from all sorts of quarters and and some educational authorities as well. So you're, you're absolutely right. And we certainly do work with and have worked with very, very young people into the workforce, young graduates entering the organisation, and indeed very young first-line managers in their first appointment. Because you know, for, for any of us, as we begin in our career, the expectations on us are very great. And of course, we only accumulate experience as we progress through our, uh, through our careers, yet we're still expected to have answers. And... I think that puts an intolerable pressure, uh, pressure on people where, where actually what we spend our time really doing as an organisation is showing certainly younger managers that it's not necessarily about having the answers, but it's knowing how to generate the answers and knowing who and how I would couch the questions that would stimulate the right sorts of thinking and the right outcomes is actually such a valuable skill set because it it forgives younger managers for not necessarily having to have the answers. Well, I, I know you talk about them as accidental managers. Um, I, I tend to refer to them as they're the person who gets tapped on the shoulder. And it's, Dominic, we've just fired your idiot boss. You're now the idiot boss. <laughs> yeah, um, and th- that's basically the runway. So you and I have spoken in the past about this whole concept of apprenticeship to learn the skills of being a manager before you're thrown in at the deep end with a concrete uh, necklace. So what should the runway look like? What should the management apprenticeship look like? And is there such a thing as a management apprenticeship? Yeah, there there are a whole load of uh, apprenticeships which are sort of endorsed by um, the the government and actually form a a course of study that that, that you'd put managers through to accomplish team leader qualifications or supervisor qualifications or indeed there are management degrees which now qualify as apprenticeships and I think from our work I think what we have seen is that there is a there's a, a front end set of skills which are just absent from all of us as we progress through our careers and one of the things that we have noted certainly in our work over the, over the past 15 years in particular is that as we progress through our careers we're typically being appointed to successive management positions because of our problem-solving skills and we seem to know what we're doing. But actually, what's actually happening is we're becoming more advocative. We're becoming more directive. We are 
relying upon the conviction we have that we know how to solve the problems because we've done those before. But typically, when we're appointed into a new role, we're sort of relying on the previous role we did to sort of propel us into our new role. So we are still in part doing somewhat parts of our previous job. So when people come to ha- you know to come to us for help and say, how can I do this? We're drawing on our previous knowledge of how we used to fix those problems. And of course, because we're doing that, we're closing off any opportunity of entertaining any or inviting any new insight. We are simply recycling what we already know. And it's a bit of a clever trick for all of us. We're sort of getting on um, deploying the solutions we've always sort of deployed. And, and we're getting pretty good. We've collected a lot of solutions and we're sort of trading on that and, and, and trying to do our best. And, and that's all any of us can do because no one is talking to us about how we would need to perform differently. How should we look and smell as we move up? No one's ever sat us down and said, right, now you're managing this extended team. This is how you can engage them right. to get the best from them. Right. So so talk to me about that. What should we expect and be clear about when we appoint a manager in terms of what we expect them to do, what we expect them to stand for and how we expect them to perform? I think that would be different for every organisation. And the challenge that you threw out earlier is is the fact that so many people are appointed, they're they're tapped on the shoulder, they become these accidental managers because there's no, no other method for progressing them. I mean, we're so used to this hierarchical idea of advancement that we need someone to sort of be managing the team and making sure that, that things are staying on the rails. And that's the mental model that most of us take on for our management role. I've got to keep the show on the road. The buck stops with me. I'm supposed to help if people come to me for help. I feel obliged to help them because I sort of know how to do that because I used to do that job. But I think that there is room now for organisations to sit down and say, look, now we are a group of managers running teams. What would good look like? I mean, what do we really need from our managers? And I'm minded of a a coaching conversation I was having with a very senior uh, guy recently who is a commercial director. The question I started to ask was, what would, in your mind, a great commercial director look like? And he was able, of course, to, to list off all the things he thought would be very good. But then I changed the question slightly. The question was, but what form of commercial director do you need to become such that this organization would say that they have had the best commercial director that they have ever had? What do they need you to become in this role such that you will have really left the mark? And that was a harder question to ask. He hadn't really, and I don't think any of us necessarily do this, he hadn't really put himself in the frame of thinking, I am here, I am now, this is the role I've been asked to do, but I'm actually being sort of managed by this sort of notional idea of what a good commercial director looks like. But actually, if I sat down and looked at this organisation and the way I understand it right now, what did they need me to become in order to have stewarded this role in the way that's going to move this organization forward. And I think that is a really powerful question for any of us to ask when we're appointed into a new management role. It's a fabulous question. Love it. Thank you. Um, no, really very good. So I'm stealing it. You'll get credit once. <laughs> uh, so what I would appreciate is a clear understanding of what operational coaching looks like in practice. And to juxtapose that with 
the traditional coaching that we all know we should be doing but never make time for. Because that's the reality of it. When you speak to managers say, and you ask them, well, how much of your time do you spend coaching? The answer to that is normally, I know I should do more. And then, well, how much do you actually do? Well, actually none. And that's quite common or next to nothing. And when they do coach, they turn up and they just teach. They tell or they show or worse, they do. So I'm really interested. What is operational coaching? Okay, so so let me let me give you a little run up to that because I, I, I don't want to uh, don't, don't want anything to sound like we are criticizing the, the state of management. I think all of us, and, and my experience has been that it, yeah, everyone is working incredibly hard, and of course none of us go to work to do a bad day's work. We are all doing our level best, and 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 that workload is becoming intolerable. I mean, there, there is so much work, and as we delay. Yeah, you know, we we can find we're doing the job, the the volume of work of, of two or three people historically, even more in some cases. I'm 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 working with very senior leaders who, you know, one of the other senior leaders leave and they pick up their entire portfolio as well. Now they're covering two direct spaces. I mean, it's just the stress that people are under is absolutely incredible. But that's exacerbated by the fact that we have a very task-focused approach. We look at our work stack and we go, this is just crazy. I've got so much to do. And it's almost a list we can never get done. And we're constantly reprioritizing. And that brings with it its own stresses. What do I need to do right now? I've got limited time. How can I get there? What, what has to happen? And I guess the, 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 it brings us then to this answer to you know, what is operational coaching? And on the face of it, you think, might think, oh, that's coaching in an operational environment. But it's really not. It's fundamentally different. Operational coaching is, is simply about helping managers to adopt into their daily style of management the ability to ask better questions. And that sounds really easy, but each of us have progressed through our careers and developed the habits that we have now that allow us to operate every day. You know, we've become this model of a manager that we have built as we progress through our career. So you're talking about undoing some really heavily embedded habits about how we respond to our daily stress, how we respond to people when they ask us for help, when there's a problem, how we're going to dive in to fix that, perhaps even putting another member of the team's nose out of joint, who probably with some support would have been equally capable of solving that problem. So we have to try and break open these habits that we have in order to learn how and when we can ask questions that engage people differently. And that is what we mean by operational coaching. It is a management style that is going to favor inquiry more than advocating. So we're talking about less tell, more ask. But making that behavioral adjustment is where we are focused. It is incredibly challenging work, but really rewarding because we work with large groups of managers and leaders. And the, the feedback we have when people have started to use some of what they're learning, we've shown them how to do that and showing them how to put it into practice and feeding back with them. We, we, you know, you can't do this in a one-day workshop and you're done, off you go. This is not training. This is an intervention where we're going to be showing managers how to break open their habits and actually form around some new habits that include the, uh, the use of inquiry. And getting that balance now between advocacy and inquiry as we go through our day is the focus that makes... Do you mind clarifying what you mean by inquiry? 
Is it just asking questions or is it more formalized, more structured? Than no, that's, that's a great question. And it's easy to think that uh, if we uh, if we ask open questions, we're done. No, it's much yeah. more than that. And, and there, is, there is learning around it. And it's learning that we have developed over many, many years around how you can architect a question to provoke the thinking of the other person in a particular way. But having the wherewithal to stop and bite your lip when somebody asks for help, and, and, and in a split second, think, you know, actually, could there be a better outcome here? Of course, I can give them the answer, but that's me recycling what I already know. Could there be a better outcome if, if I entertained a conversation by asking them a question in a particular way that stimulates their thinking and actually prevent myself from solving their problem and instead help them to create a first step towards solving it for themselves? You can think if, if, if each of us maybe has a team, I don't know, 15, 20, 30 or more people, typically within our work week, we will interact with a similar group of people and we'll have a number of interactions with them throughout the week. If we could identify just a handful of those instances where you could learn to bite your lip and perhaps entertain a different quality of conversation by asking that person some questions. And as a result of those conversations, they started to define particular actions they might take, and you encourage them to take those actions. You can see the, the aggregating and the compounding impact of having those conversations over a period of weeks and months, how the people around you would begin to flourish and gaining confidence and actually perhaps not come back to you with so many problems. Just think of it this way. If, if you're a facts and figures, ROI-minded kind of person, on average, a manager will get somewhere between 16 and 20. And if I'm being honest, I think that's optimistic. 16 to 20 interruptions from people within the team or from around the business looking for their help. When you multiply that across 240 working days, that's somewhere between 3,840 and 4,800 learning opportunities wasted every year if you don't ask a question and you simply provide the solution. Now think about the compound effect of having those 3,840 to 4,800 times even 10% of your managers. That's a lot of improvement. I, I always teach uh, my teams the half a percent rule. One of their missions is to improve their performance by half a percent a day. Wow. What they've got to do is just half a percent. That compounds to 373% by the end of a year. And by the end of three years, it's over 2,700%. Now, that's a hell of a lot. I'm oh, sorry, 27,000%. You don't expect even that level of improvement. Yeah, preach. I'm absolutely with you. Those numbers are astonishing. And, and we see that. We actually, in the organizations we work for, we, we might be working with four or 500 managers simultaneously. And the impact of them starting to change their behavior is notable. We even created a, a name for it, the change wave. And we see it, it ripples through the organization. And when you start to find those opportunities to engage team members differently by asking the questions, and it's not natural to start with, it's not your normal behavior. Your normal behavior will have been to direct, to tell, to answer. Where's Dominic and who's abducted him? Yeah, exactly right. Uh, well, you raised an interesting point because we, we've been working with a, a large global bank recently and, and it completely uh, 
We didn't inspire them to do this at all. Completely voluntary on their part. They went back to their teams and they, they were very declarative about the learning process they were going through. And they invited their teams to hold them to account on this. And, and they, they hadn't got that idea from us. We are not directive in our programs. We will never, we never stand in front of a room of people and say, you should do this, you should, it's good. That's just no way to change behavior. All of the work that we do it, with groups, if we're doing live programs, utilizes really highly experienced coaches to take managers and leaders through what is actually a protracted group coaching experience where they are starting to see for themselves their personal impact. And that's you know, another thing we've never really thought about. You know, we've got to where we are in our careers, but have we ever actually sat down to examine how do I affect people? How do I impact people? How am I perceived? And it's really interesting when you start to reflect on that stuff, you start to recognize, actually, am I as effective as I could be? And it goes back to this question, that the example I gave for that commercial director, really starting to ask, you know, what does my organization need me to be? If, if, I, was the be if I was going to be one of those best people in this role, you know, how would I be performing to have really, really made a dent, made a difference here? And I think when people start to address those questions, they recognize, you know what, actually, I'm really not engaging with the people around me at all. Give, give me an example of what the change wave looks like. What do people describe it at, like uh, as uh, when they're on the receiving end, on oh. the, the implementation end of it? From my perspective, one of the things that we see when we're uh, working with organisations is that we start to hear our language coming back to us. And, and that is really satisfying. People, the, some of the concepts and the ideas that we share with people really turn some lights on for, in people's heads. And I think it's, it's like one of those things, once you've heard something, you can never unhear it. Once you've gained an insight, you can never uninsight it. You, you've made a mental switch. Something's gone off in your head and that's changed. And that, I think that is, that is the process that we take people through. We, we create so many switched on lights. New pathways have been determined you're never going to find your way back to where you were because things have changed for you. So one of the things that, we, that is wonderful for us to, to experience is hearing our language come back to us. Once that becomes common parlance in an organisation, once you have a critical mass of managers and leaders who are now performing in this way, we see and we, we have reports regularly of teams changing and improving their performance. I'm minded of an example we heard about uh, only a few months ago a manager who is widely regarded as a dinosaur manager, <laughs> who literally had reinvented themselves and had gone on to really pursue an interest in, in coaching uh, more deeply, wanted to go on and qualify as a coach because that became a, a core passion. But actually, and the impact on that individual in the workplace was to, almost like a leopard changing his spots, actually woke up to the fact that he had a, a great team working for him with very different individuals who he really didn't know at all anything about their expectations, their capabilities, and just changing the quality of the dialogue and starting to invite people by very, very innocently asking questions, but not making those, I'm going to coach you right now, no, I'm going to go into coaching mode. It was actually just genuinely, as a part of his natural dialogue, introducing questions that stimulated a different quality of conversation. And the things that just came from that uh, were remarkable. People who had never felt that they could contribute started to contribute. People felt safer volunteering their own ideas without being dismissed. 
and felt that those ideas would be entertained. And so on a, on a mini local basis, he changed the culture within his team. And if you can imagine multiple managers changing the local culture within their team, what that change rate starts to feel like. I'd be really curious to find out if there are any stories of managers then uh, relaying how they were using operational coaching to manage up. Very interesting. I, and I shan't name the company, but we we worked with uh, we work in some very specific areas. So one organisation we worked with recently had a very well established communications function, and that communications cadre was made up of communications professionals who supported all of the different managing directors across all the division and divisions in the global business. But they were very much used as a service by those managing directors. I want to communicate this. Can you put something out? I'd like to do this. And so it's very reactive. But actually, you've got really highly trained, exceptional, uh, exceptionally qualified communications professionals who felt they had more to contribute. But they found it very difficult to question their managing directors because it felt exactly like that. I'm questioning their leadership. And actually what they learned through our program is there is a form of inquiry, which is very respectful. It's about the way that you ask questions with, with genuine, sincere authenticity, with those questions coming from a genuine place where you genuinely are interested to hear what the other person's saying. So this was really a process as communications professionals, and, and mark the word here, they're communications professionals, and they didn't know how to use inquiry effectively. Mm-hmm. But they learned through, through our programs how to do that in a very respectful way, to indicate through their inquiry that there was some depth behind what they had to offer. And the feedback they had was absolutely remarkable. I mean, the, the, the feedback from managing directors in particular changed towards, I feel I have a partner in my communications now. And that's a big change. And so that completely changed how that entire raft of supporting communication professionals were regarded now as professional advisors. But in fact, they weren't providing advice. They were asking questions that would get the managing directors to think slightly differently about the outcomes that they wanted to really generate. And then how might we effectively communicate that and link it to other things to reduce fear? Very interesting. Okay, so what I'm very curious about is the blind spots traditional managers might not be aware of and how they can recognize, so they can heighten their uh, level of awareness how they can recognize the impact that solutioning is having on their people and what they can do immediately in order to start getting their people to solve their own problems. Yeah. I think that the biggest one and probably the most shocking that some of your listeners might be familiar with is the international malaise which is affecting all organisations, which is the absolutely tragically poor levels of employee engagement. Mm. And um, I think it's one of the major research organisations, name escapes me right now, it might be Gartner or another one, has published their international engagement report that has the average engagement internationally now at 20%, which means that you know, 80% of your workforce are disengaged. In the UK, sadly, the figures are worse. It's put mm-hmm. at 9% engagement which means you've got 81 percent you know not engaged and worse than that about 18 to 20 percent of that group 
are actively disengaged, which means they are undermining their, you know, vocally undermining their dissatisfaction and, and, and affecting other people around them. So yeah, this is really challenging. The stunning blind spot that most of us don't recognize is that 70% of the variance in employee engagement scores is thought to be down to management behavior alone. So that is the way that we actually engage with our teams. And we, we see that regularly in the clients we work with from their employee surveys, which include questions like, my manager is interested in me. My manager is interested in my development. My manager is supporting me in advancing my career. My manager consults with me. My manager is, in, is prepared to entertain my ideas. Those sorts of questions get appallingly low scores. And in fact, there was a survey carried out by the CIPD a couple of years ago to really invite employees to comment on a range of management competencies. And coaching on the job was put at the bottom of a list of 18 competencies. The bottom. Well, there was a study that the SRC did in the beginning of 2020 that said something like 87% of managers were con- sales managers were convinced they were giving coaching. But their own people, only 17% said they <laughs> any form of coaching. And that didn't uh, even speak to the quality, the frequency, the cadence or anything else. That doesn't surprise me. And uh, one of the the most powerful pieces of uh, feedback we receive from our programs is one we get all the time. I mean, literally, this is the most common piece of feedback is, I thought I knew what coaching was until I came on on, on this program. And it's because we all have this mental model that I started this conversation with of what executive coaching is and the idea you've got to sit down with someone and have a one-to-one and, and then I'm going to do a coaching session, I'm going to coach you. And it's, it's, it, 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 that is what it has been. I mean, let, let's not beat around the bush. That is what it has been. The distinction that we have made and the, the focus of our work and our research and our work with extended groups of leaders and managers in a variety of different sectors and organisations is... How do you strip out from that and build upon the behavioral aspects of that, which will help to change the mental model we hold about the managers that we are and what we should be and what we should be doing? I think this speaks to how we understand the roles of managers, because clearly managers have some form of leadership function. They have a supervisory role. They have a role that seems to be way too prevalent, which is doing stuff. And uh, they have uh, a design element to their role. And they also have a coaching element to their role. Now, I don't see design or coaching or leadership happening anywhere near enough. And I see way too much supervisory and doing. Is it just me? No, you're, you're absolutely right. And I think it's, it's uh, again, it, it plays to what I was saying about the mental model that we've built about ourselves and how we go to work and what we do. Um, I can ask your listeners now, who amongst us has a to-do list? And pretty much everyone will be nodding right now, saying, yeah, I've got a to-do list. And we define our work contribution by what we're able to cross off that list each day. We are burning down our task list. But guess what? It's never going to end. We'll just be adding more and more and more tasks. We're just burning it down. Nothing is substantively different. We're just in role for as long as we are there before somebody taps on the shoulder and asks us to step up and solve even bigger problems. Most of our time will be spent just crossing stuff off the list, more and more stuff, more and more tasks, more and more. 
we are just firefighters. We're firefighting our way through our three-year tenure in this management role before I get promoted. Often less now. I'm, I'm working with leaders now getting changed roles every seven or eight months. I mean, it's, it's just madness. So their mean time to contribution is having to be reduced and reduced. They're having to come in and just start fighting fires right now, right, right now. And, and so we're just defined by this. It's the only way we can keep a grasp on what it is we're supposed to be doing. Taking that step back and asking those questions about how can I actually be more effective here? The answer is by actually helping this team to progress to a point where they've not been before, before I move on. How can I arm them, equip them, build them, so actually the next person coming to his role can take that forward and build this team to be even better than they are? So this then speaks to, there are so many questions, so we need to to have you back. But there there are a a number of really important questions that come out of this. The first thing that I want to make clear, the reason why people don't coach, despite the fact they know they should, is they don't have the time or they don't make the time and they can't make the time. So the problem is, if you don't coach, you'll never make the time. The big lesson that I learned along the way was the more I coached and the less I told, the more work other people did. So I ended up not taking on their workload. I remember working with my accountant who was getting 36 interruptions a day. And when we stopped those interruptions happening and allowed her to prioritize, her productivity doubled in two weeks. She went from a 17 to 21 hour, six day a week working week to a nine hour a day, five day working week. Production doubled and profits doubled. Now, part of that was spending time really coaching her people to enable them to do the work that she was paying them for. Because I see upward delegation as a huge problem. And the net result of that is that managers are taking on probably 40 to 60% of the workload that they carry is actually other people in their teams. Would that be a fair assessment? Yeah, and that's something we we measure regularly. And uh, that that squares exactly with uh, what we find. And it's partly because when we move into a new role, we're dragging bits of our previous role into it. And the minute somebody comes and asks us for help, and we're providing that solution, yeah, you're right. We've taken on the work in that moment. We're taking that work on. And actually, all we're really doing is is helping them or, or leveraging what we used to do. So we're actually doing our previous job to solve that problem. And the minute that we are solving the problem, we're doing the heavy lifting, we're doing the mental work, and a number of times we're going to end up with a task to do ourselves out of that. You know, learning to engage people differently and putting the ownership for moving a solution forward back with them, only where that's appropriate. I mean, if you have someone who comes to you for help and they genuinely have no idea, it doesn't mean you can't ask them some questions, but we're not going to be churlish if they if there is no way that they are capable of having any knowledge, then I'm not going to withhold an answer from them if there's a, only one answer to the, the situation. That's madness. But in most circumstances, if I have the momentary opportunity to think, could there be a better outcome from this conversation? And then ask them a question that helps them define a step for themselves, then ownership stays with them. And I haven't taken on the work. And in that moment, they have done some of the heavy lifting. So they've created some new neural activity for themselves. They perhaps have built a tiny fraction of confidence has improved to them. And if I'm able then to support them through seeing through a whole solution, then they really will have 
gained from that interaction, built some confidence, improved their resourcefulness and their confidence for dealing with similar problems when they arise in the future, also meaning less likely they're going to come back to me. Well, I think this also speaks to another really critical problem at the moment. There's a huge skill shortage. Uh, We have this uh, global uh, grand resignation that's occurring. We have problems with hiring because the lack of talent uh, available in the market and uh, massive competitive demand. And I'm pretty sure, without exception, most organizations could easily create top performers faster than they can hire them. And if they're not coaching, they're missing out on those opportunities. They're not creating their their successors. And certainly as a manager or a leader, I think every one of those should be working towards their own redundancy. Thoughts? I wouldn't disagree with that. I think that... um, I agree either, Rick. Yeah. (laughs) As people... Progress. I think you 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 recognise. I mean, the feedback we get from managers who've been through our programmes is is an opportunity for them to reinvent the remainder of their career because they've found different ways now of adding value. And if by making themselves redundant you mean they don't have to be the problem solver anymore, that's a good thing. I don't want them to be the problem solvers necessarily going forward. I, I need them to be the enablers of the people around them to be able to step up to be able to take on those problems themselves. And when they manage to do that then it's time for that manager to move on in seniority to the next team that they can work with to do the same. So actually, the idea is that as you move through, you're you're leaving behind you an enabled team, or at least on the path towards having enabled them to be better, so that the next manager then comes on and take that team further forward. And I quite like that idea that in our roles as our managers and leaders of groups of people, we should be really thinking about you know, what is it I'm leaving behind here? Have I just, or have I just spent my shift doing my firefighting for my, my X number of months I'm running this team? When I recruit, I always like to ask, what's your next job? And what's the legacy you, you intend to leave behind in this one? Why is it going to be better for the person coming in once you leave? As a manager, what I want my managers to be doing is I want them to be doing high value work. I don't want them to be doing work that we're paying people 30 quid an hour for. I want them to be doing work that we pay people 500, 1,000, 5,000 an hour for, because that's why they're in those roles. They have that competency, that capability. I think there is a huge challenge in terms of the early stages of a new manager in post, that onboarding process. I'd love to have a chat with you briefly before we wrap up about onboarding managers. Because, again, I mean, onboarding generally is pretty appalling, but managers, you've hired a grown-up, uh, so you don't, want to leave, you, know, you don't want to interfere. And it's typically give them their computer, introduce them to a few people in the office, and off you go. Yeah, I think that's, uh, that, that's fair. And I think one, one of the things that uh, certainly we do in our own organisation is, is we already have thought through some immediate, uh, not, not quick wins, that's the wrong thing, but some immediate piece of work where, they can really demonstrate their expertise, get to grips and get some really early wins there. But also when we have newly appointed managers and, and, and we see this now in the organisations we work with, that, that coaching, that evolving coaching culture means that the leader that has employed that manager, that manager will form a part of their team. And actually if they're using more of a coaching style and they're using inquiry, then they'll be having that 
sort of dialogue with those managers to really be helping them think about how they can be effective quickly. And if they then don't send them through an operational coaching program, which I hope that they do, and that is happening in organizations now, they at least then are having these, these quality coaching conversations with them on a day-to-day basis. And very, very quickly, those managers who are on the receiving end of those questions are starting to think differently already. And they, they sense they're working for a boss who is going to be asking them questions and helping them do the thinking. I think that's really important. That's what we want is, is a thinking and learning organization where people understand that actually they have a contribution to make. And, and just the, the number of stories that we get from companies about the people that have come off the wall and just shone. And it's only taken one or two questions to show them that they are really valued and that we really do genuinely want to hear from you. If you've got great ideas, let's, let's get a hold of those. And it's remarkable just incredible. We're we're untapping the potential of people which we've never invited before. The more we direct, the more we close people down. This reminds me of a really interesting interview I had with a chap called Ian Dodds. So Ian worked with ICL for decades, turning around uh, all of their failing factories. And he was a really fascinating, or is a really fascinating character, but he's been been incredibly influential on me because one of the things that he really made made central to his work was focusing on diversity and range and getting diverse groups of people working together on the same problem and finding what people have in common where and he was going into factories where the communist party was running the unions so you know it was fairly militant and he would, uh, within a couple of years, he was turning these places into the top performing factories worldwide. Wow. Um, now, what he always made the, made the point about was you manage inclusively. And you have to have a diverse group of people looking at the problem with fresh eyes and uh, finding that common ground. And that can only come from uh, an inquiry-based uh, approach. It's not going to come from telling. And that's, that's fundamentally the work that we do. So about two years ago, we instituted the STAR Culture Awards. Uh, and STAR is a central model that we, we invite managers to, to work with to help them to change their behavior. And the organizations that win those awards are those who've made that commitment to make this a thing, to actually openly say, we are going to move to an inquiry-based culture where we value the contribution of everyone, but actually our preferred style of behavior is to ask rather than to tell, to move away from a command and control to an inquiry-based culture where asking is the prevalent behavior. And it it, is remarkable because when that is known and celebrated and invited, and in some quarters, you know, it's appropriate where friendly challenge is made. It's not challenging questioning people it is asking a better question because we believe we could drive harder for a better outcome. Uh, and that is so incredibly powerful. The bank that we're working for internationally, they do these interminably long audio conference meetings where they'll have 26, 28 people on the call reporting in from all the different parts of the world. It's just hideous. They used to go on for two and a half, three hours, those meetings, really, really internally torturous. And people just checked out waiting for their turn to talk. They've cut those down by about half because they just get there so much faster by having a very quick debate where they build on and build on and build on a better question until they get to the doozy of a question that they need to address. 
which gets right to the heart of the matter of what they want to be able to talk about. They have a quick conversation about that, and they're sort of done. The power of the outcome comes from how they worked up that question to be so laser-focused in terms of the power of that question that when they start to wrestle with it, they get into solutions much faster. And I, I think that's really fascinating. And that idea of working on a better question, we're not asking the right question, what's the better question, how can we get there, is such a powerful mindset. If you can have that spread across an organisation, you introduce that as the culture within teams, how can we get there faster? What's the question we need to be asking? What aren't we asking ourselves? What would a more powerful question be? How can we wrestle with the answers to that? How can we solutionise around that? That starts to get really exciting. Excellent. Dominic, we've come to time, so let's uh, start wrapping up. You've got a golden ticket, and you can go back and whisper in the ear of the idiot Dominic, age 23. What one choice bit of advice would you uh, give him that you know he'd have probably have ignored but would have benefited from? I can't remember who gave me the advice, but uh, somebody gave me a piece of advice when I was very young, which was, um, you know, choose your thing and make it a thing and stick with it and choose to become good at it. And I think that has been the pattern through my career. I've always, always been interested in the human aspect of what we all do. And that's been a pattern throughout my career. So I would whisper in my ears, stick at it, stick at it some, keep going, because actually there, there is something here. And I think the work that I have been engaged in personally, but also through through having built out Notion to become what it is, we, we have done just such fascinating work, working with really fascinating groups of people who have been kind enough to let us come in and sort of addle their brains and, and do some clever stuff uh, <laughs> with them. And the results have been amazing. And they're very they're kind enough to keep us informed about when they get promoted and they tell us about the impact and the feedback. And uh, we have lots of advocates out there. And, and we actually have people now identifying themselves as operational coaching practitioners or star managers. And that becomes really exciting when people start to say, do you know what, actually, I want people to know that I'm a different being I, I manage people in a very different way when they're making that sort of personal statements i think you know I'm, I'm i'm really proud of that and i'm thrilled for them because i know the impact that they're having is 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 so very powerful fantastic okay so what would you recommend people read watch or listen to well we are currently we're writing a book um, which is going to be published in the first quarter of next year so um, um hopefully we'll be able to use your good auspices to come and talk about the book but i think uh, I would invite people to just try and check in with their day. Uh, a really quick exercise you can do is just at the end of each day, just review who, who, who did I speak to today? Which interactions did I have? And just start to recognize which of those conversations that I have today could have gone differently if I'd chosen to ask a question. And uh, you'll start to be surprised. And that's where we start everybody is that just that general move towards becoming more aware unless we can develop that awareness then nothing else will change so i'd invite you just if you have that opportunity to to start to become awareness and and actually a lot might well come from that and um yeah that's what i'd say and are, are there any particularly good books around learning how to question effectively i'd like to say yes but there aren't really on this exact subject and the danger is that you start reading lots of coaching books which will just reinforce your mental model about what coaching is so i'm, okay. I'm so don't, um, don't read coaching books. Don't read coaching books right now. But um, I, I think anything around communication skills or anything about asking questions would be really, really good. But self-awareness, um, I think, is a habit. I think starting to you know, just find time to step back, even reflect on conversations that didn't go well. What was the turning point? What, what, when did it start to go adrift? 
what could you have done differently there? And we'll talk again, I'm sure. Excellent. Okay, so how can people get hold of you, Dominic? We're easy to find. You can find us at uh, notionlimited.com or businesscoaching.co.uk. Uh, notionltd.com. Uh, if you'd like to learn more directly about some of the programs we run, then there's a great website called starmanager.global. That's all words, starmanager.global. That will introduce you to our award-winning blended, and it's an experiential online blended development program, which has been winning awards, which is a really powerful experience, which managers work themselves through that program. That took two years to build that program. Uh, with over a million pounds of investment put into designing that so that it would actually impact people. And uh, there are forms on there and there's ways of contacting us on those, on those websites. And I'd be very happy to speak to anybody who can see the potential for changes in their organisation if we could introduce this inquiry-led approach to management in a meaningful way, which is, by the way, every organisation. Excellent. Dominic Ashley-Tims, thank you. Brilliant. Thanks, Marcus. Appreciate it. So this is Marcus Kauke signing off from the Inquisitor podcast once again. If you found this useful and insightful, then please take notes, go back, listen again, and tag somebody who'd benefit from it. In the meantime, if you'd like to get hold of me, email me marcus at laughs-last.com. And in the meantime, stay safe and happy selling. Bye-bye.